The following message is brought to you by MacArthur Boulevard Baptist Church. We are many stories made one family by one gospel. If you would like to connect with us, please check out our website at MacArthurBoulevard.org. Amen. As you're seated, uh, open your Bibles to the end of them uh, and find the book of Revelation. Chapter 1. And this morning, we are going to look at the first three verses of chapter 1. Revelation 1, 1 through 3, as we begin a journey this morning uh, through what is maybe one of the most intimidating books in all the Bible for a lot of Christians. The, the book of, your Bibles may already be there, but if not, go ahead and find, again, Revelation chapter 1. We're going to look this morning at verses 4 through 8, all right, Revelation 1 verses 4 through 8. We started a new sermon series last Sunday, walking uh, through the book of Revelation together. We're going to close out the introduction of the book uh, this morning. Now, if you're anything like me, then 90% of the mail that you receive goes directly into the trash. I mean, 90% of the mail that we receive would fall into that category of mail known as solicitation, trying to sell you something that you neither want nor need, and so it's junk mail. You, you get rid of it. That's 90% of the mail. Now, of that remaining 10%, another 5% of the mail is mail that you need, but you don't want to open. This is the category of bills that may come to you in the mail. And I know we don't get a lot of paper bills in the mail anymore, but occasionally you might, like a medical bill or, or something like that, and you see it and you have to open it, but you open it with, with dread and gloom. But on the rarest of occasions, you go to the mailbox and you get mail that falls into the category of that final 5%. It's the category of a gift of some sort that comes to you in the mail, right? It could be, a, it could be an escrow refund. It, it, it could be a thank you car. It, it could be a, a birthday card. If you're really fortunate, it's a card from Georgia Nelson, right? Handcrafted specifically with you in mind. That's the mail that you hold on to and you open with eagerness. Now, again, if you're anything like me, how do you determine when you get a piece of mail which category it falls into? I look for three things. The first thing I look for is who sent me this mail, all right? Who is it from? And so I look at the return address. If it says from Baylor Medical Center, I know, I think I know what this is, and it's going to be that bill category, and I open it slowly and with dread. If it says from Georgia Nelson, man, I'm, I'm in that thing, and I'm excited to open it, right? Who is it from? I also look at who it's for. I look at the, the address line. And if it says, for example, to current resident, I know <laughs> this is going in the trash. All right, this is a solicitation. I don't, I don't need this mail. Um, we look at who it's from. We look at who it's for. And then finally, I, I try to look at, you know, what is this about? I'm looking for the subject of it. Sometimes you have to actually open the envelope to, to, to get this, but you see a key phrase like, you have been pre-qualified, okay? Okay, this is a su the subject of this piece of mail is some 
line of credit that someone's trying to offer me, right? Or maybe you see the phrase, thank you, or happy birthday. And that subject clues you in that, man, this isn't a bill. This isn't a solicitation. This is, man, this is a gift of some sort uh, that's been sent specially for me. I want to know when I receive mail, who is it from, who is it for, and what is it about? Now, I told you last Sunday that the book of Revelation is unique because it's like three different types of writing in, in one. There is a sense in which it's an apocalyptic type of writing, meaning it uses rich imagery and symbols to convey meaning. It's also a prophetic type of writing. But I said that it is, in a very real sense, what they call an epistolary type of writing. In, in other words, it's a letter that was written for real historical churches. And I want you to imagine that you are a Christian living in one of those churches. You're living in the first century under the reign of Emperor Domitian, which was the Roman emperor uh, at this time, around 90 AD. And we know, we know that Domitian's reign was brutal. He was, he was savage. The cruelty which he displayed toward those within the kingdom. And we also know that he hated Christians uh, he brought wave after wave of persecution against the church and believers all throughout the Roman Empire. And here you are, one of these Christians, right? You're living under Domitian's empire. You're struggling to provide for your family because nobody in town wants to do business with a guy from that cult, right, known as the way. You're struggling to provide. You feel afraid. You don't know when you, your family's going to be you know, physically harmed or persecuted, you feel alone, maybe you begin to question whether or not you are going to be able to endure the hardship and the persecution that is coming your way because of your faith in Christ. And you're just barely holding on. And, and then one day at church, a letter shows up. So what's the first three things that you want to know about this letter? Well, you want to know who is it for, who's this letter from, and what is this letter about? And guys, these are the three elements introduced for us in our text this morning, which constitutes the formal salutation of this letter, which is the book of Revelation. Okay, so, so we get this letter, and, and first we want to see who is this letter for. And we see, number one, that Revelation is a letter for the one universal church. Revelation is a letter for the one universal church. I want you to look at verse 4 with me. It says, John, to the seven churches in Asia. Okay. John, we already know, was the human author who actually wrote down the, the, the revelation that he saw. Evidently, who is known well enough to the people he's writing that no further description was needed. No title is given. It's just John. They knew this guy well. Now, there is some debate as to whether or not this is indeed the Apostle John or if this was another John that was well known amongst the churches in Asia. There's enough historical 
evidence to conclude safely, however, this is very likely none other than John the Apostle who's writing down this revelation. But then it says that it is addressed to, the letter is addressed to the seven churches of Asia. Now we're going to talk more about these churches when we come to them in chapters 2 and 3. They were seven literal historical churches that existed in what is modern day Turkey, uh, a part of the Roman Empire in the first century. But the question we have to ask here is, why is this letter that is the book of Revelation, why is it addressed only to these seven churches? Like we, we know that there were more churches in Asia at this time. Why is he writing specifically to seven churches? Well, I said last Sunday that seven is the favorite number of the book of Revelation. It is no coincidence that John addressed this letter to seven churches. Seven, biblically, is the number of fullness or completion. It was modeled after the seven days of creation. Okay, the seven churches here are intended to represent the whole church, the church in its fullness, the universal body of Christ. This is a letter for the bride of Christ. Yes, it was originally sent to seven literal historical churches, but it is a letter that is intended for the capital C church of Jesus Christ, which is why he addresses it specifically to seven churches. Now guys, this means that when you're reading the book of Revelation, you're not just reading a letter that was sent to a few churches that existed around 1900 years ago, and you know, maybe we can learn something from it, maybe we can glean some principles from it. No, we're reading a letter here that was sent to the universal bride of Christ that we are a part of. This is a letter that God sent for us today as much as he sent it to the historical church in Ephesus or Pergamum or Smyrna. That God cared enough about you and your trials. He cared enough about your battles. He cared enough about your perseverance to send you a letter. Right? I mean, this is what we do when we want to demonstrate that we care about somebody. Even in a day, a day of, of, of emails, right? When we really want to demonstrate that we care, we sit down and we write somebody a letter. And then when we receive a letter from somebody, man, it makes us feel so special because it demonstrates, man, they took time to write me a letter. Guys, when you pick up the book of Revelation, please don't pick it up and read it as if it is simply addressed to current resident. General, impersonal, who happen, whoever happens to be living there and picks it up. Okay, now this, this, this is a certified letter, special, written for the bride of Christ that if you are in Christ, you are a part of. Okay, so we get, we get this letter and we see that it's addressed to us, the body of Christ. But, but before we get too excited... 
we want to look and see, well, okay, but who's it from? Who's it from? Now, we, already, we, we know that John is, yes, the, the human author, but who is this letter really from? So look back at the text, verse 4. It says, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. This is number two. Revelation is a letter from the triune God. It's a letter from the triune God. All three persons of the Godhead wrote this letter. And all three persons of the Godhead signed this letter with a specific description, a specific title. You know how whenever you write a letter, oftentimes you'll put your name at the bottom and underneath your name you'll put a title that describes who you are, office manager, uh, lead pastor, right? Describing yourself to the people you're writing. All three persons of the Godhead signed their name to this letter using a specific descriptor of themselves. So, so first, it says that it's coming from, look at what it says, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Okay, this is a paraphrase of the personal name of God that was first revealed to Moses in the book of Exodus, Yahweh, the I am. And here it specifically refers to God the Father. Now, why does the Father sign his name with this specific title, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. It's because a part of the purpose of Revelation is to give us, okay, the, the limited, the finite, the temporal people of God, to give us the perspective of the one who is, who was, and who is to come. How many of you remember Super Bowl 51? Lucas raised his hand. I know that one. He's a big Tom Brady fan. Super Bowl 51 constitutes the greatest <laughs> comeback in Super Bowl history. Okay, New England Patriots, led by, yes, Tom Brady, um, found themselves in a 28-3 deficit midway through the third quarter against the Atlanta Falcons, led by that other guy. Um, that nobody remembers because I didn't win, right? I think it was Matt Ryan. Uh, before they went on to score 25 unanswered points, force overtime, and won the game in overtime. Now, I want you to imagine that you could only see one series of that game. And let's just say that that one series that you could see just happened to be Atlanta's final touchdown. They drove down, they scored to go up 28-3. to That's all you could see. Based upon what you could see, you would conclude that New England lost that game in epic fashion. Because limited perspective produces wrong conclusions. But then you meet a guy, and he says, no, I was there at the beginning 
I can see the same series that you're seeing, and I was there at the end. This guy's got the entire game recorded on DVR. This guy can give you a fuller perspective and thus correct your wrong conclusions. Okay, the father is describing himself to people who can only see the present reality of their world. All they can see is their present situation. Right? And based upon what they can see, <laughs> evil and darkness and injustice is winning in epic fashion. <laughs> they see brokenness and their friends getting murdered because they believe in Jesus. They see hurt and pain and sorrow based upon what they can see. They conclude that their faith in Christ may have been in vain. They may conclude that they should abandon their faith in Christ. But then, <laughs> this letter shows up. They hear from the one who has the entire game of human history on DVR, right? They, they hear from the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And in this revelation, he's going to correct their perspective in order to prevent wrong conclusions about the world and about this life. And I want to point out that the, as, as the father is revealing himself here, the emphasis is put on the father being present. Did, did it strike you as odd that he revealed himself as the one who is, who was, and who is to come. That order doesn't make a lot of sense. We would expect him to say the one who was, past, the one who is, present, the one who is to come, future, past, present, future. It's not what he says. He says the one who is, and who was, and who is to come. See, when you're in a trial, okay, when you're facing a, a temptation, when you feel all alone. The Father wants to emphasize to you, I am here with you right now. Okay, not only was I, not only will I be, but here and now, in everything you're going through, in all of your uncertainty, hell is breaking loose around you, and I am here. He's not just the God of the past. Sometimes we read the Bible and we think of God as the God, that guy who used to do a lot of amazing things. Or we read the Bible and we think of him about the, the guy that will one day, the God of the future who will one day do a lot of amazing things. But he's not just the God who was and will be. He is the God who is. Which means in the present you can know him. You can experience him. He is with you. That's what the Father is emphasizing to his people as he signs the letter. This is a letter from the Father, but it's also a letter from the Spirit. This is the phrase when he says, and from the seven spirits before his throne. Now that, that title the seven spirits. It's a unique title for the one Holy Spirit that's used in the book of Revelation. Okay, the seven spirits. What is Revelation's favorite number? Seven. Okay. And just like the seven churches represented the one universal church of Jesus Christ, 
In a similar way, the seven spirits, that title, represents the one complete, full, perfect, eternal person of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is also an allusion to Zechariah chapter 4. In Zechariah chapter 4, there's a vision of seven lamps. And it tells us in the vision that those seven lamps represent the Spirit of God, the one Spirit of God. The point of that vision that he's making, the prophet is making, is that this temple that they're rebuilding, this temple is not going to be built with the power of man or the resources of the earth. This temple would be built by the power of the Spirit of God. And so the Holy Spirit signs his name to this letter with this title, the seven spirits, jogging the reader's memory back to the vision of Zechariah 4 and reminding us that he is the power. The Spirit of God is the power that will build the temple of God, the church of Jesus Christ today. That the Holy Spirit is the power of God inside you, bringing you grace and peace from before the very throne of God, the seven spirits before the throne, grace and peace from the very throne of God being brought to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. Okay, this is a letter from the Father. This is a letter from the Spirit. And then look at what it says. Finally, a letter from the Son. And guys, before I actually read the passage, the Son receives the emphasis in the text. That's why it doesn't go the traditional formula, Father, Spirit, Son. It goes Father, uh, Father Son, Spirit. It goes Father, Spirit, Son. Saving Son for the end, because he's going to elaborate on the Son. The Son is also emphasized here in the fact that he's given not one title, but four. And then after those four titles, there are then three declarations that are made praising the son okay four titles three declarations four three seven what is revelation's favorite number seven seven amen four titles first of all he is christ he is it says Messiah. He is the anointed king who will come and deliver the people of God. Second title, he is the faithful witness. The word witness in Greek is martus. It's where we derive the English word martyr. A martyr is someone who is faithful in their witness even to the point of death, okay? We think about being a faithful witness. We think about sharing our faith a lot. The root of the word literally means someone who is faithful to proclaim Christ even when it costs them their life. Jesus was the faithful witness par excellence. He left us a model to follow. Next title, he is the firstborn from the dead, right? In Judaism, the firstborn was the next head of the family who controlled the inheritance. So this title, firstborn, conveys the idea of rank and authority. He was given a position, Jesus, the son, a position of supreme rank because as a result of his resurrection from the dead. And then finally it says, and this is good news, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. You think that's good news to these Christians living under the reign of King Domitian? 
The one who writes this letter is the ruler over the kings of the earth. Do you think that's good news to Christians in North Korea living under the reign of Kim Jong-un? Do you think that's good news to the Christians hiding out underground in Russia and the Ukraine experiencing the wrath of Vladimir Putin? Do you think this is good news for all Christians living under fallen and sinful governing authorities? That this one who writes this letter is the king over every ruler. Every ruler on planet earth. This is the king of kings. Guys, this is a Christ-centered salutation. And that's demonstrated further in this really odd thing that happens in the salutation next. Like, this is a formal salutation to a letter, and right here in the middle of it, it, it just erupts into doxology. <laughs> it just interrupts itself to praise and extol the Son. And it praises Jesus in the, in the text for three specific things that he has done for his people. Look back at verse 5. To him, this is talking about Jesus, to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so the first thing God wants us to know in this letter that the son is praised for is that he loves us. He to him who loves us. This is present tense, continual action, ongoing, perfect, eternal love of God. He loves us. It's the first thing it mentions. Guys, if I were separated from my family and I, were writing, I was writing them a letter, during a time in which I knew that they were hurting and they were suffering and they were struggling, do you know the very first thing I would want them to know? The, the very first thing I would want to convey to them, I would want them to know, I love you. I love you. That's the first thing God wants us to see here. Praise him for his love of us. He knows your situation. He wants you to know that he loves you. And then it praises Jesus for, it says, setting us free from sin by his death on the cross. So the emphasis here not is primarily, it's not primarily on the penalty of our sin. This is not primarily focused on our forgiveness of sin. This is focused primarily on the power that sin had over us and how the blood of Jesus set us free from sin's dominion. The grip that sin had on our hearts. That because of the blood of Jesus, we don't have to live as a slave to sin anymore, just doing whatever sin tells us to do. He has set us free now because of the blood of Christ. Sin no longer has power or dominion over you. You've been set free by his blood. Praise Jesus. And it says praise Jesus because finally he made us a kingdom and priests to his God and Father. Guys, that statement is incredible. You realize that title, kingdom and priest, was a title that was first given to the nation of Israel. It's a very specific title in the scriptures, Exodus 19. This is what God told Israel. It says in Exodus 19, he says, listen, 
if you obey my word, if you obey my word, then you shall be a kingdom of priests. If you do this, then you will be that. That's what it says in Exodus 19. It's stated differently here in Revelation 1. It doesn't say, if you do this, then you will be that. That's not what it says. It doesn't talk about what we need to do to be. It praises Jesus for what he has done. It says, to him who, perfect tense, who has made us a kingdom and priests to his God, that in Christ we have become this new Israel, this new people of God in the world today in the church. And I want you to notice it's not just that we were forgiven of our sins, as amazing as that is, but we're actually given a new identity. We're given a new calling. We've been made a kingdom and priests. And notice also, we're not just a bunch of saved and redeemed individuals scattered throughout the earth, right? He has, he has what does it say? Formed us into a people, a kingdom, a priesthood, a nation. And he hasn't just brought us into a kingdom. He says, no, you are. We have become a kingdom. Meaning we share in the kingship of Christ. We function, the church, we function in this world as a kingly people with power and authority. And not just a kingdom, guys. But priests. That's amazing. God made us the priesthood. Pop quiz, what was the priest's most foundational assignment? The, the first line of their job description. It was worship. The priesthood was responsible for executing worship in the presence of God. You see, Israel was supposed to be not just a nation with priests. They were supposed to function as a priestly nation, bringing worship into the world among the nations. They were to be this light that gave the nations a glimpse into heaven, which is a place of worship in the presence of God. This calling that we have as the people of Christ, is one of priesthood. And guys, it is our most foundational, it is our foremost calling and assignment to bring the worship of God into this world, to give the nations around us a foretaste of heaven through our worship. Most foundationally, beyond everything else, the church is to be a priestly people. Worship is our first assignment. Okay, and so I ask you this morning, beyond all of the busyness of your life, beyond all of the great service of your life, and all the other activities and ministry of your life, and even your church life, beyond every other hat you wear in this life, do you see yourself foremost as one who has been called 
to worship in the presence of God. Too often we, we, we think of worship as a means to the end. I got together with God people, God's people on Sunday. I got to worship so that I can get my spiritual juice to get through the week, right? As if worship is a means to the end. Guys, worship, in so many ways, worship is the end. We're a priestly people. This is what we do. God didn't save us primarily to be a kingdom of henchmen. To do all of his dirty work. He didn't save us to be a kingdom of butlers doing and doing and doing and running ourselves into the ground. He called us to be first and foremost a kingdom of priests who worship him. Okay, this letter shows up in town to a bunch of discouraged and beaten down Christians and they see, they get the letter and they see, man, this is a letter for the universal church that they are a part of. And it is a letter from the triune God. And then finally, they want to know what is this letter about. They, they, look, they look for the subject of the letter, which is verses 7 and 8. And we're going to cover verses 7 and 8 quickly here, Okay. Start with verse 7. It says, look, he is coming with the clouds, and, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him, all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. This is number 3. Revelation is a letter about the coming of Christ to judge the nations. Revelation is a letter about the coming of Christ to judge the nations. Verse 7 is a quote of two Old Testament verses, all right? It's first a quote of Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, which is about the Messiah who would come with the clouds to execute justice and righteousness on earth and deliver the people of God. That is paired with a verse from Zechariah, chapter 12, verse 10, which is about the mourning of people when they become aware of their sin and the rejection of Jesus Christ. John brings these two verses together here to refer to the second coming of Jesus, who one day will return victoriously as the Messiah King. And on that day, all who are lost in their sins, which is represented here by the phrase, those who pierced him, because it's our sins that led and culminated in Jesus being crucified, being pierced, all who are lost in their sins will mourn because it is a day of judgment. This is the subject line of the letter. This is, you think this is a prelude of what's to come in this letter. This letter is aimed at and will culminate in the second coming of Christ to judge the nations. Now for suffering Christians, that subject brings incredible hope. For those that are not followers of Jesus Christ, that subject ought to stir up incredible fear. And dismay. 
He's coming again to judge the world. And just to make sure we get the point, he says, so it is to be. It is certain. It is true. Amen. And we know it's true because God is sovereign over all of world history. He's sovereign over the beginning. He's sovereign over the end and everything in between, which is the point of verse 8. He's the alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet. He's the omega, the last letter of the Greek alphabet, which means he is sovereign. He is the God over everything, everything in between. He is the one who is, who was, and who is to come. He is the almighty God. He is sovereign over every situation in your life. He is sovereign over every authority in your life. He is sovereign over every obstacle in your life. He is sovereign over every person in your life. He is the almighty God, the beginning, the end, and over everything in between. There's no chance this letter can end any other way than the way that he determines it will end, which is with the return of his son to judge the nations. That's what this letter is about. And so I ask you very practically this morning, what are you worried about today? What kept you up last night? What is it that feels hopeless in your life right now? What is it that causes you incredible pain and sorrow and maybe even at times despair? What, what's, what's going on in the world around you? What's going on in your world that's causing you, even this morning, it's causing you to question God's goodness God's love for you, maybe even causing you to a question God's existence. Whatever it is, when we are in the trials and the tribulations of this life, the triune God of the universe cared enough about us to write us a letter okay so before you give up recognize you've got mail and after surveying this mail and who the letter is for and who it is from and what it is about you see man this isn't junk mail this isn't some solicitation trying to sell me something that i don't need neither is this a bill that you dread to open because it's wanting something from you that you don't have this letter is a precious gift from the triune God of the universe. And he cared enough about you to write you this letter, knowing how hard life can be in this world. Knowing the trials that you would face, he said, I'm gonna write him a letter. Because Jesus in this letter will give you the perspective that you need. In this letter, he will give you hope that he's coming again to judge all injustice. He's writing this letter to assure you he has not forgotten you. He loves you. In fact, he is present with you. He is victorious, and in him you are victorious 
too. Okay, and so as the priesthood of God, those who have been called into a priesthood in the midst of this dark world, let us worship him and praise him. Let us be a people who say to him who loves us and who has set us free from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom and priest to his God and Father, to him be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen.